Well, hello and welcome to a little sermon extra here in the Ascension Sermon Feed. My name is Eric. I'm the assistant pastor here at Ascension Church, and we just want to talk for a minute about infant baptism. This is based on the text that was just preached this last Sunday at our church as we're working our way through Acts. Uh, Gray, why why did you want to why did you want to do this? Yeah, maybe it's important just to say first why we're doing this in general. A sermon extra. We've never done this before. Uh, what is that? <laughs> Basically, what it amounts to is that at the end of my sermon preparation every week, generally speaking, there's a lot of cutting. There's uh, scraps of truth lying on the floor, so to speak, proverbially, deleted off of my computer. There's just not enough time to exhaust you know, what is going on in a text. And particularly, we've been studying the book of Acts, which has these massive passages And so we thought as an experiment, maybe we would uh, set a microphone up and very casually talk for a few minutes about some of those things that maybe don't make it into the sermon every week. And we actually don't know if this is a good idea or not. So you let us know if you like to hear things like this, if this is helpful to you. And if we hear crickets, maybe we won't do it again. But if it's helpful, then maybe we'll do this more often. But you kind of teed it up a little bit, Eric, talking about baptism uh, today, because we just had a sermon on Acts chapter 2, which is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit has come upon the church, and Peter then rises up and preaches a sermon. And the sermon, as I mentioned this last Sunday, is about Jesus. I mean, from front Mm -hmm. to back, what he's doing is saying, this is who Jesus was, how he lived, how he died, uh, how he was raised from the dead, how he ascended. And then how you need to have a life in him by being baptized into his name. So the sermon is about Jesus, and I literally call my sermon a sermon about Jesus. I wanted to make sure that the thrust of my sermon was the thrust of Peter's sermon. And yet, at the end of that sermon, there is this verse that has become very important as an interpretive key for our tradition. It's Acts 2.39, and it does talk Uh, or at least it does have reference to the topic of baptism. And so since I couldn't get that into my sermon this week, I thought maybe we could talk about that for a second. Um, So first, maybe why don't you just read the the verses that we're talking about, um, and then maybe I can talk about a little bit about baptism here. But um, Acts 2, maybe a couple of verses before that, starting in Mm -hmm. verse 37, maybe you could read that for us, Eric. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. It's the end of the sermon here. Now when they heard that this... When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So it's important to kind of lay the groundwork a little bit and say, so... Basically, in summary, Peter says, repent, be baptized, believe, um, is implied there to believe. He says it elsewhere in other sermons, believe, repent, be baptized. Um, And then he says, for the promises for you and for your children. And we're going to talk a little bit about baptism just to lay the groundwork a little bit. We are coming from what's called a paedo-baptist tradition, or Presbyterian. And uh, paedo means, uh, in Greek, it means boy or or child. And so it is the case that we baptize children. And you mentioned earlier, you said 
Infant baptism, which is the kind of the more popular way of saying it, I prefer to not say infant baptism because it kind of implies that because the, the child is an infant, that's why we're baptizing them. Hmm. And, you know, like we would take kids off the street that are just infants and just <laughs> baptize them. That's not the case. We baptize the children of believers. Hmm. And there is, we should say, a, a strong tradition, uh, especially in American context, of not agreeing with that. And that's typically called a credo Baptist position. Credo is just a Latin word for saying, I believe. So it's the believer's baptism. When someone says, when someone says I believe in Jesus, that's when you baptize them. And if we read the passage we just read, it seems like, on for, at first glance, that that's exactly what we should believe because Peter just preached the sermon and he said, what should we do? And he's talking to individuals and he says, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And so on the surface, you know, it seems like the credo Baptist position would be the, the position that would arise most naturally from Scripture. And I, I just want to be clear and say, I don't think that Acts 2.39, which says the promise is for you and for your children, definitively proves infant baptism, uh, because that's not how I think of the, you know, it's not a provable argument. That's often the way that it's framed in these types of discussions, as someone says, hey, where's your proof for infant baptism? But the Pado baptist our, our position, doesn't think that way. It's not about proving an individual doctrine. It's actually about the whole sweep of redemptive history. And so I was trying to think this morning as I was driving in, Eric, um, about an example of this kind of thinking. And I was thinking about the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, as a Christian reading the Chronicles of Narnia, you may know that Narnia represents, is allegorical for heaven and earth as it should be, right? The new heavens and the new earth. And at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, they go into true Narnia. And that's the, the true new heavens and new earth that C.S. Lewis had an allegory about um, in his books. And yet there is no statement in the Chronicles of Narnia that says, now, you know, Narnia stands for heaven and earth as it should be, hmm. right? <laughs> he doesn't say, right. come out and say that, right? right? Because it's assumed in the way that he develops it, right? Hmm. And actually is more beautiful in the way that he develops it, that he doesn't just kind of say, this is the fact of what I'm doing. And so if you were a, not a Christian and you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you may not see that at all, right? But as you become a deeper and deeper Christian, that theme is going to become more and more obvious to you. Hmm. So the, that's the way that I understand. When I look at the scriptures, I don't say, where are the proof texts for infant baptism? What I say is, well, with the way that the scripture has been developed, why would children not be included in the covenant? Why would children yeah. be excluded from this? Um, does that analogy make sense to you? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and actually the, the J.C. Ryle quote came to mind. It's something like, uh, nothing would astonish a Jewish convert so much as to find out his child couldn't be baptized. You know, it's that idea <laughs> of you, you've, you've been living the story. You know the Old Testament. You know the, the God of the covenant, and this is the same God. So why... Uh, why are you now excluding my children categorically when before they had always been included? I think that, that that's, yeah, that's a really fine point with, with what you're saying about Narnia developing. It's not even so much that it needs to be stated. It, it is so a part of reality that it does not need to be so finely parsed out. 
Yeah, and I say that with humility, knowing that other people see different things and there's sure. different traditions. Mm-hmm. But I agree with your point. Uh, it, kind of, it goes with the grain of Scripture. and um, But I do think there are examples of infants being baptized in the Bible because there are household baptisms. One, one person believes, and then their household is baptized. Mm-hmm. That happens five times in the New mm-hmm. Testament. So I do see examples of it, but I don't see a proof text for it because I think it's just assumed. But mm-hmm. let's go a little bit into this one verse here uh, for a second and talk yeah. about this. Um, so how would you imagine, let me just put it like this. Eric, you're at a Billy Graham revival <laughs> in the 1950s or whatever, mm-hmm. or just any, picture any kind of baptistic revival. Mm. Um, what are the elements of that to you as, as you think through like, what, what would be said at that revival and how, what would people be experiencing? Well, certainly the repent and be baptized. I mean, call, yeah, you can hear an old Baptist call, preacher, right? Oh, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> very, very strongly coming through. I think on Sunday you mentioned Peter as kind of the goat preacher, the greatest of all time. This is kind of what we envision when we think of, you know, very sincere preaching. Um, so I would expect a lot of this here. Uh, even those who are far off, everyone who, I mean, that's kind of the, the desire of, of, of those revivals to, to bring in those who are far off. And yeah, you got a group of individuals, right? Individual sinners, we mm-hmm. could call them, right? Who've come in to hear about how they're sinners and that they need salvation, right? And then whoever the revivalist is tells them how they get salvation, right? You got, he's telling stories, right? He's preaching the Bible. Maybe he's even preaching Acts 2 and he's saying, look, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you are far off and, um, and got it, this is what in Christ has been done for you. And he would say the things that Peter is saying here. He would say, repent, right? He would hope for some conviction, right? They were, they, they were cut to the heart. Uh, he would hope for some conviction. He would tell them what to do with that conviction is to repent and be baptized, every one of you, mm-hmm. right? But what I want the reason why I set it up like that, because that's a very credo Baptist kind of way of think, thinking about the Bible. Um, what part would not be included in the Billy Graham or the revivalist sermon that is actually included in this revival in Acts chapter two? Which part? Well, I think myself and everyone listening is probably jump into the promises for you and for your children. <laughs> Just an immediate uh, handoff there, or kind of a multiplication of the promise, yeah. might stop us in our tracks and say, "Well, I'm not sure how my children are responding to this sermon right now. I know how I am, but just um, picture how that would ha- <laughs> how that would go down if that were to happen at a revival. Mm-hmm. So, what should we do, you know, with this conviction? Well, the promise is for you and for your children. That doesn't fit in an American revival context. No, um, and I think that that is instructive for us. Why is that the case? Is there perhaps a truncated view of what happens in salvation and in redemptive history that maybe we've latched onto certain things that we've ignored other things? And that would be what my contention is. Hmm. So I think what most credo Baptists, most Baptists, most people who would say you have to express belief in order to be baptized would say is the world basically involves two categories of people, saved and not saved, born again and not born again. And if they were being honest about it, they would have to say, well, their children, especially if they're really young children, um, would belong in the unbelieving kind of category until they could come to their own revival or maybe they hear a Sunday school teacher or maybe they have their own experience at a summer camp or whatever it is. They would have to have the same experience that I myself 
you know, this individual is thinking at the revival, they would have to have that same experience so that they can be in the believing camp. Now, technically, uh, with the view of all history and the view of time, they are correct about two categories, right? The Bible says there are those who are saved and not saved. There are those who are born again and not born again. Hmm. Um, that is from God's perspective from all of time and history. We actually don't know, you know, as we look around, that person's saved, that person's not saved. And people walk away from the faith, and that brings up questions of whether they were ever saved at all. And that's hmm. probably a topic for another day. But rather than just seeing those two categories, what I think the Bible actually invites us to see differently is three categories. When it, when it comes to this question of the saving community, is it just made up of believers and unbelievers? Well, yes, from, from the view of God, but from the view of Scripture and from the view from the ground floor, we would say it's actually made up of three categories. Believers, mm-hmm. the larger covenant community, which contains believers and unbelievers, and the nations or unbelievers, those who are outside. And so maybe you could talk for a second about how, where do you see that in scripture or maybe in the Old Testament, that kind of, that kind of division? Yeah. Well, I mean, I almost see this right here in this passage, just as you're outlining it, even, you know, for you, the believer, for your children, the covenant community, and then for those who are far off nations and unbelievers. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we talk a good bit about um, Israel and that um, and that within Israel there are you know there's there's a broad range of people who are following the customs and born into that uh, into God's people um, but the scriptures say that not all Israel is Israel indicating that there's a smaller subset yeah that's that is, a verse in Romans it says right. not all Israel is Israel so what do you think is meant by that well I think it's referring to though there's the outward sign there is a circumcision of the heart that has happened to true Israel and so it, it, in my mind it's it's a little bit of a time will tell you know it's it's you know it's for the Lord to judge the heart and and to call the heart to himself but um, that's right. So Israel was a nation, mm-hmm. right, that had markers. Mm-hmm. It was circumcised people. They had certain dietary laws. They had um, they observed the Sabbath. They had a priesthood. There were markers of what Israel was. But then the scriptures say, but not all Israel was Israel, meaning some of those within Israel had a true heart of the covenant. They followed after God with their whole heart, right? And... But it was not easy to distinguish, as you said, between those who had the visible mark and the invisible mark. And, you know, this is what the prophets were always upset about with, mm. in Israel. It's like, you're, you're doing these feast days and you're, you're being circumcised, but what I want mm-hmm. you to do is circumcise your heart. I want you to actually follow after God. Mm-hmm. But being a part of the covenant community had benefits, mm-hmm. right? It, it was, they were truly a part of God's visible people, meaning when the covenant people were blessed— you know, with the promised land, for instance, those who didn't follow after God, though they had the markings, they were part of the promised land, right? So they right. had the blessings and they had the curses, but they were not following after God. Mm-hmm. And regardless, they were very different from the nations. No one would say about a bad, quote unquote, bad <laughs> Israelite that they were a Philistine. Mm-hmm. They were different than the mm-hmm. Philistines. Mm-hmm. And so as you point out, that kind of threefold um picture is evident here in Acts chapter 2, where Peter uses covenantal language, 
And he, he basically grabs language straight from the Abrahamic covenant. Mm-hmm. And he says, the promise is for you, believers, mm-hmm. right? you who hear this today, you're, you're mm-hmm. cut to the heart, you need to be baptized, mm-hmm. right? For your children and for all those who are far off, anyone that the Lord calls to himself, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Anyone could become part of Israel in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You could come in and be circumcised and come into that covenant community. But most of Israel was genetic, right? Yeah. Most of Israel was the expected heirs mm-hmm. of the promise were the children of Israel. Right. But anyone could become an Israelite. And Peter says the same thing here when he says, you believers are creating a new Israel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and your children are the expected heirs. Mm-hmm. But anyone from any place, you know, can come in to this family and start a new family. Um, and that, so that covenantal language is there. And I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as well, which gives another example of this. That's very briefly a place where Paul's talking about marriage. And he says, um, the, you know, what do you do if, if there's somebody that's in a marriage that one person is a believer and another person is not? And he says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So mm-hmm. you can see the threefold division right there. Mm-hmm. Believing and unbelieving, right? Right. Somebody that's far off, right? Somebody that's part of the nation is not part of God's community, unbelieving, believing spouse, right? And then the unbeliever who is made holy and the children who were made holy. There is a covenant community. So there's actually somebody in this community that doesn't believe, Hmm. you know? (laughs) And the children, right, they they need to be raised up Mm -hmm. as to to know that they need to believe, right? But... They're still already holy because of the belief of mm-hmm. the mother or father who had them. So one person mm-hmm. is able then to extend a community that people are a part of, and there can be unbelievers in that community, mm-hmm. which is just a strange concept for us Americans who like the, you're either born again, you're not born again. It's like, well, um, that's true, but it's not the mm-hmm. full picture. Yeah, and and I think a lot of the conversation around Acts, even as we've been going through it, you know, sometimes comes up: um, is this book descriptive or prescriptive? Like, is this mm-hmm. just a description of the early church that we're meant, or is it something that prescribes a set of actions? And I think we get both from Acts. But one thing we do get, as you said, uniquely from Acts is obviously apostles living and breathing and working on earth. And the other thing is, like you said, adding to the family here, um, first generation believers being brought in. And then with them, of course, would be the extension of their children, as we're saying. But in our church context, we, I mean, we still see both of those. Just a few weeks ago, we had an adult baptism and it was profound. I don't think there are many dry eyes in the room as this Absolutely. young woman was baptized and, uh, and professed faith in Christ. It was very profound. But there's a unique beauty also to when we have the child of believing parents baptized to see the faithfulness of God through generations and in a household that's under under his covenant as well. So we do see both. It's a great point. Yeah. We need to be clear that because we're, we practice paedo baptism doesn't mean that we don't practice adult baptism. And, you know, I think it's beautiful, these p- p- passages and acts that 
describe adult baptisms. You know, I want more of that. I want us to be preaching the gospel every week and for adults to be coming to faith. So it's so the Credo Baptist way is really beautiful for a certain time and a certain subset of mm-hmm. Christendom, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, there are adults who need to repent and be baptized, mm-hmm. right? The question then gets weird, though, when we say, but what about their children when they're raising them up? Mm-hmm. Like, are they trying to make them, are they, are they trying to recreate their own experience mm. and uh, treating them at a distance until they have an experience? <clears throat> well, I find that for me in the New Testament, you know, that's, you know, you want proof texting, right? Where is it? Children are always included in the commands. Children obey your parents and the Lord, right? And what right would someone who thinks that their child is an unbeliever to say to them, now you need to obey like you're a believer until you prove otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's not the picture. There's, that's not the New Testament picture. Rather, we are telling our kids to have faith and every person does have to turn to God, you know, and, Every person does have to repent, absolutely. But um, the way that we treat our children is that they're expected heirs. The promise is to you and to your children and to all those who are far off. They're the expected heirs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's weird to include them in that statement if mm-hmm. they're not the if there's not a special category for that, you know. Yeah. So I'm not saying that this verse proves infant baptism. Wait, in conclusion, I guess we're not saying. <laughs> This is now your foolproof way. It's just more of like, do you understand the grain of Scripture mm-hmm. and the way that that Peter thought about children, even mm-hmm. while he was telling adults to believe? Do you understand why that is then part of this whole covenantal grain that the Scripture unfolds? Yeah. And again, you know, there's many other passages we could go to, and there's many other things we could say. And there's many things we need to say to our children that call them to this kind of repentance and mm-hmm. faith. Um, mm-hmm. But it is a way that we have an attitude towards them, one of inclusion mm. rather than exclusion. Yeah. yeah, it shapes how we live as parents and yeah, as disciples of Christ. That's that's good. Yeah, there's no yeah silver bullet argument for this. I agree. I agree with you. But it is helpful to see this whole pattern throughout all of Scripture and how God has continued to so work. So let us let us know if that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want oh, to say good. we've gone long here, but you know. Let us know if this is helpful or not, and we'll see you on Sunday.